All right, so there's something about earning that makes us want to keep, right? So a football player works hard, sometimes his whole life, to get that Super Bowl ring. They're not going to part with it. The Olympic athlete dedicates their life to that gold medal. They don't want to part with that gold medal. How about you? Do you have a retirement fund? You've been working hard for that retirement fund. You've been saving. That was your hard-earned money. Do you want to part with that? What else in your life have you worked hard to earn that you want to keep, that you cherish? The harder we work for things, more often, the more we hold on to those things. And yet there will be one day when we stand before God and we realize everything we've ever worked for really was for his glory. And we will freely give all those things to God. And that's what we're going to study today as we jump back into Revelation. So we've been, uh, we were walking through Revelation before, and then we took a little break for Advent. Christmas was over yesterday, so boom, right back into Revelation. So we're into Revelation 4. If you're not familiar with Revelation, there are four different visions that John has. That's the, the outline of the book is four different visions. We were studying the first vision, and the first vision uh, is different letters to seven different churches. Chapter 4 picks up with a different vision. So we've got the second of four visions that he's picking up for. Uh, Revelation was written by John the Apostle. It was written most likely in the 90s, not the 1990s that we're familiar with. He didn't wear Jinko jeans. Uh, he didn't have a bowl haircut, skater haircut. Uh, anyways, he, it's not the 1990s. It was the original 90s that he wrote in. And he was writing during a time of persecution. Now, this persecution wasn't like the persecution under Nero. Under Nero, there was heavy persecution. There were Christians that were being lit up on fire at night to light Nero's garden. Think about that. They were being fed to lions. They were being killed by the hundreds. That's not the persecution under Domitian. Domitian's persecution was softer, but actually more effective. It was softer and more manipulative. You see, he wasn't burning Christians to light up his garden. Instead, he said, okay, you can worship your God. Go for it. You just can't participate in business if you worship anyone other than me. So the imperial court, cult, or the emperor cult, was running over through Rome, and it was really tied in with patriotism. If you were a good Roman citizen, you worshipped Caesar. If you weren't a good Roman citizen, then you didn't worship Caesar. And if you want to be a good Roman citizen and worship Caesar, then we'll welcome you with open arms into the business world, into the trades. But if you don't worship Caesar, and you're not a good Roman citizen, then you can't participate 
in the business world. You can't participate in trade. Little by little, Christians began to compromise. Little by little, Christians started to give in. And eventually, started to worship Caesar. And some of them would come up with all kinds of different excuses, like, I'm not really worshiping him. I'm just saying it so that I can continue in the trade. I'm just saying it so that I can continue to own my business. I don't really worship him. Others would, would compromise by saying, hey, it's okay. All, all, all religions are the same. So there was little compromise by little compromise, and that's what the first vision is about. Though that's what those letters are all about, is the compromise. And it's, it's John, and through, or really God through John, giving us encouragement to stay the course. Don't give in. Don't compromise. And that's where we pick up with the second vision in chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet say, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, or twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pills of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them six, had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. All right. There's a lot going on here. This is the throne room of heaven. And we first find this scene, actually, in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 is the first place where you're going to, first place is, I should say, where you're going to find this throne room. So John isn't the first prophet that's been taken up into the throne room, that, that gets this special revelation where he gets to see the throne room of God. 
So he gets called up. He says, after this, so after the, the seven letters, so we've got a new separate vision. We're not entirely sure how long after. We just know that it's after that first vision at some point. And behold, a door standing open. And this signifies Christ's victory, that the door to heaven is open. That before Christ died and paid for our sins, the door was closed. But now it is open. Christ is victorious over sin. He is victorious over death. Therefore, we now have access to God where access was denied before. So that door is, sta- is, is standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that first voice is the voice of Christ that he heard all the way back in chapter 1, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. This is, uh, uh, what he's showing him is something that's going to happen out of divine necessity. God has decreed it. God has decreed that it will take place and that it must take place. He will, in fact, make this happen. At once I was in the Spirit. We've talked about this phrase before. It simply just means that this... this uh, Uh, vision is Holy Spirit-led. So we're not entirely sure all the aspects of what it means to be in the Spirit, but what we do know is that the Holy Spirit is the one leading this vision. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. So we've entered into the throne room of God with one seated on the throne. Notice that he doesn't mention God by name here. Interesting, huh? All we know is that it is God the Father, and we know that based upon how we can piece this together. So the throne room, you're going to have God the Father sitting on the throne. He doesn't give us a great description of God the Father either. We'll get into that in a second. But in chapter 5, we're going to be introduced to Jesus again. So we've got the throne room, God the Father seated on the throne, and now there's the description And he who sat there had the appearance. So first of all, this is John getting a vision of God. But God is something so otherworldly. God the Father is something so otherworldly that he can't give us an exact description. So he's giving us a a description of the appearance. And everything is going to be like. Because he doesn't know exactly in human terms how he can relate this to us. So it's going to be like. So he's going to give us the best description he can give, but this best description in human words is still going to fall short. That's important for us to note. So it is of the appearance of. It's not the exact description. You know, uh, I sit here and I look at faces, and I see a bunch of faces, and I could describe your faces. I'm not that great at description. So I could describe it, but I'm going to describe it poorly. Let's say J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a famous author, known for giving like 3,000 pages on the description of a hill. Let's say he was sitting here. He might spend five or 6,000 describing your face, and you could get a very accurate picture of that face. John could sit here and fill up an entire Bible on the picture of who God is. It would still leave us questioning what the appearance of God was like. So he's going to do the best that he can, 
but it's still not going to be that great. So it's the appearance of jasper. Jasper was kind of like a general term for a translucent stone. They're not entirely sure what, uh, what he meant by jasper, but some theologians think that what he really meant was diamonds. So we can get this idea of a translucent stone. So sitting on the throne, and you would think that the throne was made of jasper, but it's not made of jasper. It's what is sitting on the throne has the appearance of jasper. Now, no, it's not that it is jasper. Because some people might read that and think, oh, God's like jasper, or God is jasper. It's not that it is. It only has the appearance of jasper. And carnelian. Carnelian is a red stone. A lot of people think that this is, signifies judgment. I think they might be reading a little bit too much into that. But carnelian is a red stone. Some of your translations will say Sardis in it. Sardis uh, was also a city uh, that, that this stone is known for. Uh, once again, it only has the appearance. It's not actually jasper. It's not actually carnelian. It is uh, something of the appearance. The, the best way he can describe it is as if it were these things. So we've got a translucent stone that we can kind of see through, and this red fiery stone, and around the throne was a rainbow. Now this word for rainbow is interesting because it can also mean halo. And, and so when we read rainbow, we get this idea that it's like all the colors of the rainbow surrounding him. But mainly what we should be thinking of is that it had the appearance of emerald. So it's kind of got this greenish hue to it, and it is more like a halo of emerald surrounding him. So we've got this, this idea that, that, that we can't even describe God, but if he were going to describe, it's kind of like this translucent stone or with some fiery red stone with an emerald or a halo of other stone that's surrounding it that's kind of greenish. But we're not entirely sure, and we can't quite figure it out. 1 Timothy 6, uh, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul writes, God dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in unapproachable light. So God has given John this amazing opportunity to see into the throne room but he doesn't even really get to see God. He gets to see these translucent stones that dim his glory enough that he can actually see something. But if these translucent stone, stone appearance things were removed, then John would just be blinded by God's unapproachable light. So God has given him this gift, but it's still very difficult for him to translate that to us. Around the throne, so we've got this throne room, we've got these stones, and then around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Now there becomes a lot of debate in this chapter about what does each appearance of stone mean, what does each thing mean? And sometimes we can get so lost in the debate that we lose the meaning. And the meaning is God is glorious. God is beyond our imagination. 
So these 24 elders, there's a lot of debate about who the 24 elders are. There's debate on whether or not they're angelic beings or whether or not they're humans. We're not entirely sure. There's a lot of evidence going both ways. If you want to go research that more, you're more than welcome to go research that more. There is debate there. We're, I, would, I would fall on this. We're not sure who or what these elders are. But we shouldn't lose the point that these elders are here to worship God. That's the point. We can get lost in the debate and miss the point. The point is these 24 elders are here to worship God. Now these 24 elders are clothed in white garments. That signifies their, their purity, so they're pure elders with golden crowns on their head. Now what's interesting is this term crown is typically diadem, and that would be the crown for royalty. But the word that we see here isn't that, it is stephan, stephanon, which is a crown that someone has earned. So in those days, if there was an, uh, uh, an athlete that participated in games, he would earn this type of crown. It is something that they worked hard to achieve. And that's what these elders are wearing. So we know that these elders are pure and that these elders have worked really hard to earn these crowns. They're wearing them on their head from the throne. So we're back to the throne now. Came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So we, we're seeing God's power here being displayed. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. These seven torches of fire signify judgment. So once again, we're looking at, or we're coming right off the hills of the seven letters to these seven different churches that were experiencing some form of persecution. And what God is doing now is he's giving them encouragement, letting them know, and this is the introduction, that God is going to judge the world. The rest of this vision, after we get past chapter 5, which is about the glory of Jesus, is going to be about God's judgment on the world. This is the introduction to that judgment. So, the seven torches of fire, as we learned previously, the number seven is the number for perfection. So not only is this uh, a symbolic of judgment, but it's perfect judgment. So not only is God going to judge the world, but his judgment will come with perfection. We've got a lot of high-profile trials going on right now. And no matter what the verdict is, in the end, someone is disappointed. No matter what the verdict is, in the end, there's still a public debate. There's still a public argument over whether or not the verdict was correct. Whenever I come to one of these verdicts, of course I have an opinion. We all have an opinion, don't we? But I always, well, I try to take a step back and say, I wasn't in the jury I don't know all of the evidence. I'm going to trust the jury, knowing that they are imperfect. And the judge, 
didn't get everything right either. He is imperfect. No matter what happens, we will always have an imperfect judicial system because we are imperfect creatures. But we can trust God's perfect judgment. And that perfect judgment is coming. So he's got this perfect judgment, which are the seven spirits of God. And that signifies that the Holy Spirit is a part of this judgment. Oftentimes in our culture, the Holy Spirit is a forgotten part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit has a ministry today to convict and to grow us. Because he has a ministry today, he will also have a ministry of judgment in the future. So he will be a part of the judgment. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The sea of glass like crystal uh, is symbolic for God's vastness. So if you can, picture in your head this throne with something sitting on it that we can't even quite describe, and 24 elders and creatures sitting around this throne, worshiping God the Father. And then beyond that is this sea that is so vast like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. These eyes are symbolic of vigilance to worship God. That's what these eyes are for. So if you've ever like, read this and you're like, wow, that is so weird. It's kind of creepy. Just start to associate all of those eyes with vigilance to worship God. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. Now, these are there to worship God. The eyes will, is symbolic for, for vigilance to worship. And everything they are going to do is out of this uh, desire to worship God. Now, they're going to be incorporated. These creatures are going to be incorporated with other things. They're going to be doing some other stuff as we read through Revelation. Everything they do is an act of worship. Everything they do is an act of worship. I think oftentimes we confuse worship with praise. When we get here on Sunday morning and we sing praise to God, that is an act of worship. But that's not the only type of worship. Worship is submitting your life to God fully. We'll get into that in a second. But the point is, We praise God and we worship God. Praise is a part of worship, but not all worship is praise. So they do this day and night. They never cease. Uh, The the key here is that they do it at appropriate times. So they're prepared day and night to sing these praises, but they're doing it at the appropriate time. And what do they sing? Holy, holy, holy. Holy means like otherworldly. He's so beyond our imagination. The fact that they say it three times emphasizes 
his otherworldliness, his beyond our imagination. Is the Lord God Almighty? Lord means master or ruler, and Almighty means powerful. So holy, 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 otherworldly, 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 we get the point, God is otherworldly, right? But we don't quite even understand it. And he is our master, and he is the God, and he is all-powerful. Who was, and is, and is to come, this is emphasizing his eternality, his internality. So he is, he exists forever, forever in the past, Forever in the future, he exists. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. This falling down is an act of devotion. It is symbolic for some uh, devotion and humility. Men who have proposed, men who are married and have proposed, did you get on a knee? How did that feel to get on a knee? It felt good? What's the symbolism of getting on a knee before your girlfriend and asking her to marry you? It's a symbol of devotion. It's a symbol of humility that you are going to spend the rest of your life lifting up this woman so that she can be all that God created her to be. And you are going to lower yourself to serve her. That's getting on a knee. That's symbolism. These guys are going beyond taking a knee. And they are falling down before God as an act of devotion. But that's not all they do. Before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him. Uh, the term worship really means to prostrate yourself before. So it's like to lay down. And this is an act of submission. So not only do they show a sign of devotion, a sign of humility, they show a sign of absolute submission. Essentially saying, God, I'm no longer calling the shots in my life you are. That is ultimate worship. So we get up here and we sing praises, and that's good. We're supposed to sing praises. But if you really want to worship God, you say, God, I'm no longer the one calling the shots in my life. You are. I submit my life to you, and then everything, every part of your day, every day of your life can be an act of worship, an act of submitting yourself to God. We have a worship problem, I think, in the Christian church. Our worship problem is we think worship is simply singing praises, and so we reserve worship for Sunday morning. And the rest of the week, we get to call the shots. The rest of the week, we get to go about our lives. And every now and then, we just sing some praises to God. If all you're doing is singing praises to God on Sunday morning, you're missing the mark. Praising God on Sunday morning is a great thing. But it should be encouraging us to live our lives in submission the rest of the week. 
Are you living your life in submission to God? Or are you still trying to be the one that calls the shots? So they throw they on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and then they cast their crowns. Now remember, this isn't royalty. It wasn't that they were born with these crowns. These were crowns they worked hard to earn. And what do they do? They cast their crown before the throne. You might be working very hard for something in your life. You're working hard to earn that Super Bowl ring or that gold medal or that retirement fund or maybe it's something else. Maybe you're working hard for your freedom. Maybe you're working hard for your independence. Maybe you're working hard to finally land that job you've wanted your whole life. But in the end, are you willing to take that crown and throw it before God and say, God, this is yours It was never really mine to begin with. And the only reason why I have it is because you have graced me. You've given me a gift, God, and now what I'm going to do with this gift is give it back to you to glorify you all the more. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man, or, or we could say it, man's entire purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. It's to take whatever we've been working hard for and to say, God, it's for Your glory. I'm giving it back as as an offer of worship to You. That's why I exist. So they throw their their crown before Him. What they've worked so hard to earn, they give it back to Him and then they sing, Worthy are you. Worthy means deserving. Are you our Lord and God? So they're confessing here that God is their master. God is their ruler to receive glory. Glory means praise. So so what we do here on Sunday morning is important. Praising God is important. But what's important about it is when we recognize in our hearts that God is worthy of that praise. We don't just come in here and start singing because we like the song. Ooh, I love this one. I'm going to stand. But it's when we realize, God, you're worthy of my heart lifting you up. So worthy are you to receive our praise and honor, meaning that he has the highest status in our life. What has the highest status in your life? Who has the highest status in your life? Who calls the shots? And power. And this term power means possession. So he is worthy to receive us as a possession. And then they give us the reason why. For. This is the reason why. Why does he deserve praise? Why does he deserve honor, high status? Why does he deserve possession of us? For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. They existed. Essentially what they're saying is, if for some reason God ever ceased to exist, we would also cease to exist. He holds the entire world together. He created the world. He holds the world together. If for some reason he decided to to disappear, to vanish, we would also disappear. We would also 
vanish. Everything we have is because of him. So they give what they've earned back to him because they recognize that they only have it because of him. So what are you holding back from God? What have you worked hard to earn that you're holding on tight? And you're saying, God, you can have everything else but this one thing. And what would it mean for you to let go and say, God, I only have it because of you anyways. So now it's time for me to use this thing to glorify you all the more. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this revelation that we get to see this, this glimpse of who God the Father is and, and even this glimpse that can't fully be described, that we can't fully understand even if it could be fully described. Yet you give us this glimpse and you let us know that our lives, the whole purpose of our life is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And Lord, so often we get caught up and pulled to the side from this or that. And we pray that you would help us. Help us to let go of those things we've worked hard for so that we would glorify you all the more. In your name we pray. Amen.